Hi everyone and welcome back to the FFS show. Sorry we've been away for slightly longer than planned. Um, our uh, latest investigation uh, ended up going out a bit later than planned. So <laughs> we've been wa- awaiting patiently to be reunited with our uh, podcast friends. Um, this is the FFS show, a podcast about misinformation and fact checking. W- alongside me is my co-host, Sam Gonzalez. How are you, Sam? Hello, I'm well. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back, Ali. Welcome back, everyone. It's nice to embrace you once again in the uh, award-nominated audio waves of this podcast. Ooh, what's that? Award-nominated? What are you, what's, oh, what's that? so since we were last on air, we have been nominated for Best Podcast from uh, the Scottish Press Awards. We are in the shortlist. Which is very exciting because it's a list of the best podcasts. So it means that the banter, the sheer charm and magnetism <laughs> that you listen to here has been yeah. award nominated, you know? And, yeah. And it's been, I would describe it, it's been, it's been officially endorsed as good banter. It, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So um, that's that was very uh, unexpected. And uh, thank you to everyone uh, for the nice messages about that. Thanks very much to the Scottish Press Awards for nominating us. And uh, we are up against some pretty strong competition. So oh, yeah, we're not going to win, but it's just so nice to, <laughs> to have been nominated. It's, it's really touching. <laughs> so that's enough going on and, on and about ourselves. This week we've got a special episode where we go on and on about uh, an investigation we just put together. (laughs) Um, Me and Sam are talking to our ferret colleagues, Paul Dobson and Jamie Mann, about how we put together our most recent investigation. The reason that this podcast uh, has not been with you for a couple of weeks is because we have been doing our latest Herald investigation called Our Council's Working. That's right. It was one that we... Uh, we have been preparing for a couple of months, but uh, it was a bit of a hit in terms of, of people showing interest and signing up to read it. Um, yeah. I think it, it kind of touched the nerve on some some really important issues uh, going on locally for different kind of um, councils right now. Yeah, definitely. So we are going to go into a chat now with um, two of the journalists uh, centrally involved, as I said, Paul Dobson and Jamie Mann. Um and we, I was uh, editing the uh, investigation, so I have whatever insight that brings. <laughs> I'll be talking a little bit about that, and um, and I think it's probably worth worth saying that you know, whenever we do podcasts or we interview people from the ferret, we also need to leave some people still running the ferret, and some people are on holidays, and there's all sorts of things. So, actually, the, the investigation we're bringing uh, Paul and Jamie here, but there are so many more people that have been involved. Uh, with other pieces so you know Karen, Billy, uh, Jasmine Petra there's been a few other pieces but you can find all of them yeah. on the website so whatever we don't cover here be sure to go over to uh, ferret.scot and you'll find all of the other pieces and, 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 and bits of content around them cool let's go into it alright Can someone give me a brief overview of what the week was? Uh, the, we called it our councils working. What kinds of things are we covering? Can someone just give me a kind of bird's eye perspective on that? 
Yeah, I suppose that's um, something that I should probably say. Um, so yeah, uh, our council's working was the, our latest investigation series in conjunction with the Herald. Uh, it was a look at local councils, local authorities uh, in uh, taking into account quite a few different issues surrounding them um, with a kind of overview of are they working, how well are they serving their communities, how well are they um, representing us, how well are the people who are how well are councillors treated, how well are they uh, doing financially, how well are they managing funds, these sort of things. So our sort of five uh, main topics, uh, five, our sort of five main stories were, uh, we did one on how they were managing common good funds, which uh, Jamie was investigating. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, again, Paul's story was on, uh, main story was on how much debt they owe and how much uh, interest they owe on borrowing, uh, borrowing debt to the Treasury. Uh, we talked about Jazz um, Anderson, who dearly departed, Barrett, uh, journalist. Um, I think she's gone somewhere. She else. left the job. Yeah, she's still <laughs> yeah, alive. Let's yeah. <laughs> not be too extreme. She's still, she's still with us. Because um, she's not technically with us. Um, she did a uh, piece on how um, councillors are treated and how uh, female councillors have suffered really badly from like harassment, uh, from racism, from sexism, from like access issues when they um, in taking their jobs as councillors and how basically a lot of councils aren't really set up for people uh, outside a certain sort of demographic in society. And we also did a major piece on cuts, as in cuts to number of uh, jobs in various different uh, kind of swathe of jobs across different departments uh, and councils. And then finally, we did a piece, uh, Billy Briggs did a piece on outsourcing, which uh, looked at how much money councils were spending and how much money councils were giving, handing to huge outsourcing firms um, and how that was affecting service provision. And then we sort of wrapped the whole thing up with a piece uh, looking at different views on how to reform councils. Should we have different numbers of councils? Should there be okay. um, different uh, levels of accountability? Should there be like local mayors? Should there be... Um, more sort of uh, direct uh, representation with people so it's sort of an tried to be an encompassing look at how councils work how well they're working and what the sort of future of them should be so that's really interesting i mean maybe we can start uh with the piece on common good uh fund uh, jamie do you want to tell us a little bit about what you found in that investigation yeah sure i mean so i, I suppose you should explain what common good funds are um so like with the council's finances and the stuff that they own, they've got this sort of general pot of everything they own. And then there's the common good funds. So they were set up in 1491 by a law. So a fair, a fair few years ago. Mm-hmm. And they're meant to like encompass things that are for the common good of the town. So anything that benefits the community really. Uh, and these they include a bunch of different things, everything's from like sort of statues and buildings to parks. They've like sort of the Inverness, Cali, Thistle, football grounds, like Edinburgh's Cotton Hill, Princess Street Gardens, Glasgow's George Square, Glasgow Green. Right. Um, so they are really important and they're often the kind of overlooked compared to um, regular council funds and assets. So they don't get anywhere near the amount of scrutiny the, uh, the the regular assets do so we looked at how they changed over the last 15 years and then in the end sort of narrowed it down to the last three years to see how the funds had changed in terms of value 
Uh, and some councils had massively increased the value of their common good funds, and others had um, seriously uh, declined. And there was a lot of different reasons for that, depending on each council. So we kind of yeah we delved into that in a lot of detail and sort of broke it down for readers. What does why why does stuff get added to common good funds, and like how is it separate from normal government funding? Like why does it exist? Um, I suppose it's it's almost a way of safeguarding it, right? So if you've got a a park, for instance, or like a statue or something like that. So let's stick with the example of a park. Like a park, it has a intrinsic value to a community. Green space is like important for our health and our mental health, and it's uh, yeah, there is like sort of a key staple of any any community. But to put a financial value on it is is pretty is pretty hard. So it's. It's not necessary. It's not really like one of your assets that you can, yeah, you can can't really like like you can buy and sort of sell a, a community center or, or you know, another building that might be in, in the council's assets. But you can't really do that with a, with a park. But it does have value, so it's better to safeguard that uh, in a common good fund. But um, it's yeah, I suppose it's like they're all fairly objective. It's up it's up to councils to decide. Uh, sometimes they do consult their the community as well about what should and shouldn't be included in the common good fund. That's why the lists will will vary and there's no like hard and fast rule as to what should be in a common good fund and what shouldn't be. Yeah, so I suppose if, if common good like if a lot of the common good funds are being run down, as you discovered, then stuff like these things like parks and um, statues or um, uh, areas particularly like areas of green space are then more under threat, are they? If there's less money to service them um yeah i suppose that that's that's the other another thing to remember that uh that even though something is a common good asset it can still cost money to maintain like parks um but at then the same time there's uh, you can have assets that are um, income generating that are in the common good so it could be like a car park for instance or like a you know a swimming pool something that does have money coming back so that's the sort of thing that can either sink or, uh, you know, or grow your common good fund, depending on the kind of things that you invest in and what what you have in your have in your fund. So that's why it is up to councils to sort of keep having these um, income generating assets as well as ones that are important to the community, but ultimately cost money and to balance that to ensure that the common good funds continue to grow over the years, rather than sort of dwindle down, which has certainly happened with some councils i want to come back to some of your process on on putting that together but maybe we can kind of dip into paul's investigation now and then and then kind of talk about both together uh paul can you tell us a little bit more about uh what you wrote about yeah so i suppose um the purpose of my sort of investigation was to look more into like council finance um and because obviously that that's a key facet of you know, the erosion of local democracy that a lot of people have talked about recently is, is in terms of where they get their finances for, from, um, what level of funding they have access to, which they can control rather than it being set aside specifically for like Scottish government or UK government priorities. Um, so I think people understand the first two parts of that, which are obviously money raised through the council tax um, and then money through Scottish government funding. But I think there's lesser awareness around borrowing from the treasury um, so what I looked at was the amount of debt that Scottish councils have built up with the Treasury um, in terms of debt that they're using to spend on infrastructure and things like that, so schools, roads, etc. 
and then just the level of actual interest they're paying on this so the amount of money they're paying back to the treasury on this borrowing before they've spent anything on you know essential services for local citizens um, and our sort of top line finding from that was that they were spending over 400 million a year on interest um, which is obviously a pretty massive kind of eye-watering sum. Um, and then when you sort of put that in perspective of what you could pay for with £400 million pounds a year, so we're talking about major infrastructure projects, so things like bringing faster broadband to the islands and islands, um, a certain amount of schools, I think it was about eight, eight, no, sorry, it was about four new college campuses you could afford for that, that amount of money. So I think if you put it into perspective in that way, in terms of this money, that's just sort of a black hole, which is going straight back to the treasury um i think that that's quite eye-opening for people um in terms of what that means um i suppose there's that cascade effect isn't there um when councils have less access to money um in that they have to chase money in other areas harder so i suppose that the sort of complementary part of that investigation into council debt was um the actual individual level uh, council tax debt held by people in Scotland and how councils are now forced to sort of chase that harder by, you know, deploying debt collectors and, and people using maybe slightly unscrupulous means to get that debt back purely because there's this massive shortfall in terms of funding. Um, and I think, you know, that debt side is a big, a big part of that and a big sort of explaining factor. One of the interesting things about the series and like the last few that we've done is that it's hyper, hyper, hyper local uh, to the different councils that we looked at. Even though we, we put a national picture of it, there's a lot of finding information about specific councils and specific areas. How is that different uh, than other investigations you've done? Like, did, did you find that information was readily accessible? Was there a lot of misinformation on the way or was there none? Like how, how was the process of, of uncovering information on this level? Um, well, I suppose with my two, obviously I did the common good one with Ali Tibbet. He sent out freedom of information requests. Also we used FOI for the media consultancy article, but it's just like, well, you've just got, it's rather than having sort of one set of information uh, or a piece of data is you've got to times it by 32 and just hope that one, the councils all get back before you need to like publish. Or, you, know, you obviously need enough time to analyse it and everything. And then it's like to compare apples of apples. You need to hope that they've actually sort of interpreted your um, questions the same way and given you comparable data and information. So, yeah, I think that's definitely the hardest part of just like the sheer volume of information and 32 different people i suppose um interpreting it and and giving you it in you know inevitably differing forms yeah just the same for me it's incredibly frustrating that you can't foi cosla <laughs> um, which would make everything much easier but um yeah i mean it's it's not just that the foi in 32 councils it's like if for example for like the story on procurement it's like going through 32 council contracts registers which are all presented in different ways and um <laughs> and yeah don't necessarily contain the same information so as you say like james said it's difficult to compare apples with apples a lot of the time just because some councils might be being might be more um forthcoming and others may be less forthcoming and i think there's just a lack of standardization across that kind of thing in terms of like uh, accountability i think because there is a kind of uh, a level of when it comes to freedom of information requests that certain parties can kind of 
play around or delay a little more than others, right? There isn't a is there a hard deadline that people need to get back to you by? Uh, yeah, it was um, twenty working days okay. for like your initial request, and they can sort of say it's going to take longer for for whatever reason. Okay. Yeah, and, and certainly for this investigation, uh, it, it did happen that uh, a handful of councils didn't get back before the deadline, and they yeah they missed it by a long shot. So yeah. it just meant that you know for couldn't we couldn't actually scrutinise there. I mean, this was for the. Um, outsourcing to to media companies, there was some that couldn't scrutinize because they just they didn't think return the data in time for our deadline. So, well, and it's interesting in relation to this series as well because it's um, I don't know if you are having to wait a long time for some national piece of information. It, I don't know in my head at least it makes sense, but um, I guess these hurdles along the way affect how a local person may engage with local politics. You know, like you you think the local information should be easier to find for a lay person or, you know, I don't know, but um, yeah, it's just interesting to see how, how readily available things are for just the local pundit kind of like trying to, you know, find things out about their community. Putting the series together, I guess the question for all of you, like what's, why did certain, how, how did, how did certain stories jump out at you before others? Like what were your, was your first point of contact and, and, Ali, maybe more from your perspective, how did it come about? How did it start taking shape? Like, I'm just interested in, in that process of having nothing to having a like little like seeds of what became the eventual series. Uh, yeah, well, I think a lot of that's motivated by terror of getting things done. Um, that, that, that's certainly a good motivator. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think we'll be. We've been doing fairly regular series with the Herald over the last year. Um, people will recognise, hopefully, recognise our previous series. We did uh, Who Runs Scotland, uh, we did How Green is Scotland, and we did uh, Priced Out, which was about cost living uh, crisis. Uh, and this latest one we thought was an interesting uh, look at local councils. Obviously, the council elections have just gone by, and uh, it felt like an area that was underserved and we hadn't really done anything like it uh, in terms of looking direct, like looking at kind of local, looking at national issues through a sort of local lens, and also um, we felt that it was good. It was just a good kind of fit with the Herald. How does it come about? It's a good question. We start off with nothing, obviously, um, and have a few early meetings to sort of flesh out um, a few sort of, I mean, quite broad ideas either sort of topic areas or people will have uh, the various uh, journalists involved in the project through their own contacts and their own research and their own interest in various like different areas that relate to local councils have ideas which they bring to the table and we come with a, the early meetings we have quite a long list of ideas uh some of which are almost as fully formed as like pitches and some of which are basically just a few words on the paper uh you know, just the sort of area which you think might be interesting. And then we try and narrow them down uh, over the course of a few weeks to which ones are the most, which ones kind of fit together and give it kind of a help us give us a broad picture of the issue. Um, that in this case, like how our council's working. Yeah. Also, which ones are workable within our deadline and our timing. That's um, a kind of important part of the story. And then, you know, some stories during, during this investigation, some of the stories we tried to do didn't come off. But then we try and um, narrow them down into a sort of coherent series. I think that kind of my job is to 
work out how the stories which everyone's come up with, kind of great, really interesting stories that everyone's come up with, how they fit into a kind of uh, structure. So that was our chat with Jamie and Paul. Uh, for me personally, it was really interesting to hear about uh, all the ins and outs of freedom of information requests. Um, I, you know, I mean, you think that I'm completely familiar with them by now, but it's always interesting to hear like what, how much in advance you have to send things and the kind of hurdles along the way. Like, yeah, lots, lots of interesting process stuff in that conversation. Yeah, I think it's good. It's also, it intersects a little bit. If you want to learn more about FOI, uh we did a podcast a few weeks ago with uh carol Ewart, uh yeah. who's from the campaign for freedom of information that's right um talking about the process talking about the problems with the law and um yeah a really interesting chat i think anybody who is uh a reader of the fair knows how much we use freedom of information requests and how important they are to our work and so uh yeah it's really uh worth defending and worth promoting and if you want to find out more about the ferret if you want to uh become a member and help us decide on our member-led uh september investigation uh if you want to read everything that we do if you want to check out some of our online content uh training and all sorts of things then you can go over to social.theferret.scot that has everything, all the emails, everything you might mm. need uh, to to follow our work. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast and you want to submit some kind of piece of information for us to check, potentially in the next podcast, potentially in one of our written pieces, then you can go to checkmyfact.paperform.co. Um, that's .co at the end. Uh, you fill in a short form and we might talk about your submission on the next podcast. Yep, and um, we'll be back in two weeks with a more traditional uh, fact-checking-based podcast. Uh, yeah, we will see you then. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.